Hey, how are you? Good morning again. I am excited to say that we will be re-entering our uh, study of the book of Acts. Um, it has been like at least 15 weeks uh, since we, we were last in it. And, uh, but it's been a good break. I've enjoyed hearing the elders preach on doctrine and so on, and I've enjoyed hearing our youth pastor preach a couple of times, some uh, very apropos sermons, apropos meaning for today. Thank you, Cameron. Thank you, elders. Um, it's been a good time, right? It's been a good break because we were in Acts forever and uh, didn't really take much breaks in between and then decided to take a little break, and so it's been good, but I, I'm, I'm excited to announce that we're going to be back in it. Um, good stuff. When we stopped or stepped away from Acts, we had just wrapped up chapter 20. And Paul was on his way to Jerusalem to deliver to the impoverished believers there an offering that he had collected from the churches in Macedonia, Achaia, and Asia Minor. Uh, he was basically making good on his promise to remember the poor, and we see that he said that over in Galatians 2.10, something of that nature. I remember when he went to the ecumenical council meeting, the apostles asked that he would remember the poor, and so he took that literally and not only remembered them, but went around all the churches that he had planted and collected money for those impoverished believers at Jerusalem. So he was making good on his promise. He's uh, got a small fortune with him at this point, I would imagine. Uh, while en route, he stopped at Miletus and he summoned the Ephesian elders to come to him. Do you remember that in the middle part of chapter 20? And when they arrived, they very likely delivered the offering that they had collected at the church of Ephesus or the churches of Ephesus. And then he also, he took that offering, I, I, I would, we're speculating, but I would imagine that's part of the reason why they came. He took the offering, but he also spent some time with those men and encouraged them and exhorted them to stand firm and to be very watchful, to be very careful uh, about false teachers that would arise and even come from their own ranks, within their own ranks, which is a pretty scary thought. And uh, he also exhorted them to, to uh, preach the whole counsel of God, if you will. And he talked about how he had never shrunk back from doing that. And so he had all this exhortation and encouragement for them. And that's pretty much where we left off. That's how chapter 20 wraps up. Now your Bibles should already be at our passage. Dan just read it. We're going to be looking this morning at Acts chapter 21, verse 1 through 16, Lord willing. Uh, I definitely would like to get through the whole text. I don't normally bite off that much at a time, but uh, if you try to teach that in little sections, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It's kind of thematic, and so we're going we're gonna to give it our best shot today. So hopefully you're over there. If not, turn over to Acts chapter 21, 1 through 16, and as always, I would encourage you to be ready to take notes. This is one of those texts that the preacher opens up, and he reads through it four times and says, there's nothing here, Lord. And then two days later, he's deleting pages off his sermon. You understand what I'm saying? There's a lot there. And, you know, you might not see it at first, uh, but there's a lot of things happening. And one particular thing happening there that we'll end with as we get there. And so uh, let me pray one more time. And hopefully you're there in your Bibles. Let me pray one more time as we enter this time of worship. 
Lord, we desire to worship you through the proclamation, the preaching of your word. And how will we worship you? Well, I'll worship you through proclaiming it, and the congregation will worship you through listening and being attentive and taking notes and, and, and believing and, and desiring to do it and through conviction in these various things. And, so, and, and one thing that we must all realize is that none of that will happen apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That we must rely and depend upon the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we do believe the Holy Spirit is with us during this corporate time of worship. But we ask, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would not only be in our midst, but that he would be in our hearts, as the scriptures say he is in the hearts of the saints. And that he would do ministry now. That he would open our minds, our ears, our eyes, all that we are, our hearts, to the truth, Lord. That he would apply the truth deeply and that we would seek to obey, and that we would seek through his power to obey and to do all that you've commanded to bring you glory in every area of our life. It is our goal. It is what we are seeking. We know that that will be done in a final sense when we go to be with you, but we strive for that in this life. And so minister to us, teach us now, Lord Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, and we want to praise you and honor you and worship you. Be glorified during this time. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so first, we'll begin with verses 1 through 3, okay? So you're there, right? If you're there, say I'm there. Okay, half of you are there. All right, let me read. Let me read it. And it says, and when we had parted from them, he's speaking of Miletus, he's speaking of the Ephesian elders, and set sail, they sailed out of this place, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. Uh, and, it, and it also says in verse 3, When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. Uh, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And so, you know, we, we kind of begin this next section with some travel experience and some historical narrative of how they traveled. And I like what Luke wrote. You got to look for these little details here. You know, there's little nuancey things that he puts in here. And, and, and one of the things that he says is when we had parted. And, and, and what, he, what he means here is that Luke, the author of Acts, and the author of the Gospel of Luke, was with Paul in Miletus, and we may have covered that last time, but he's actually here writing these things down as it happens, or maybe he wrote it down a little later, but he was actually a first-hand witness to these things. He was in Miletus, he listened to the great sermons or exhortations that Paul gave there, and he's here on this boat and traveling from this place to this place. He's there, this is an eyewitness account. A first-hand account, if you will. Another thing we want to take notice of in that just beginning of our text there is, is the word parted. The word parted there. And I don't know how it's phrased in other translations. I know in, in my ESV, which is the one that I uh, really, really appreciate and, and uh, think is the one we should all learn from. Um, it says parted, and, and in Greek, uh, parted is really an interesting phrase. It means to be torn away. We might think in English terms, parted means we just left and walked away. But in Greek, the actual original word that was penned there actually means to be torn away. To tear yourself away is what it means. And so, and what we see here is that really the bond between Paul, Luke, he was there, right? The other companions that had accompanied them and the Ephesian elders was so so strong, 
so tight, so interwoven that when Paul and his companions chose to leave, they had to be torn away from each other. It wasn't just, hey, that's been real, you know, like we do every Sunday after church. Hey, I'll see you next week, or I'll see you at the financial peace class, or I'll see you at the Bible study, or I'll see you at the potluck, or whatever. It was a literal tearing away. Like, these guys did not want to separate. They had to pull themselves away from each other. It was a pretty emotional moment, if you will. And I truly believe that Christians, that brothers and sisters in Christ should seek to form this kind of bond with each other. You know, that we should seek to become so interwoven with one another that we would be transparent, that we would have really not individual lives, but lives as the body of Christ living communally with each other. And that that when we come to one another, when we join at church or in these other places, that we are elated to be in each other's presence, that we are excited to be with one another. And then when we part, that that, that there would be something that we would feel there, like that we would long for our brothers and sisters again, that we would say to ourselves, I can't wait to see that person again and whatever. And so often we say the opposite. I I spend an hour with them. I can't wait to get away from them. Right? You know, we, we usually do the opposite of that. But here we see this amazing love bond, this amazing bond based on the gospel. These guys were so connected and unified in the spirit that it hurt when they separated. And and I can tell you this, man, I know it without a shadow of a doubt. One of the, one of the, uh, the purposes of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to thread the saints together in unity and in the bonds of love. Just read John's epistles, one, two, and three. He talks about love and he talks about brotherly love and, and being communally sealed together in these sorts of things. And that is something that we should all strive for. And that is really one of the goals of the gospel. Yeah, it's to save you and to sanctify you. But it's to grow us together and to knit us together, to thread us together in love. And now just think about this. If you are a Christian, that is your eternity with the brotherhood of Christ and with Christ. You will spend eternity, which is forever knit together with the rest of the church that there will be such amazing love and such amazing fellowship and such amazing unity that we will love each other purely without weird motives and falsity and these sorts of things. That's your eternity. And so I think what's meant here in this little bit, and I don't want to extrapolate too much, but that we would seek to have that kind of bond and fellowship in this life because that's what we're preparing for in the next life to come. Right? You guys with me? This isn't an easy thing because we're sinners saved by grace and we can be selfish and we can have goofy motives and all that. But that doesn't mean that the Lord doesn't want us to strive for it, doesn't want us to seek to have that kind of connection and that kind of bond and those kinds of partings and welcomings now in this life. I think that's precisely what he desires. Now, we must know that part of the reason why 
it was difficult for these guys to separate was because they thought they would never see each other again. And so we need to be fair to the text. You can't come to church, you know, in and out every Sunday and, you know, at the end of it, I can't wait to see you again and act weird, you know, and, and clinging to someone's ankle. You know, that would, I, I don't, if you did that to me, I would not want to bond with you, okay? And I don't know if that's how this was playing out, uh, but for the most part, just think about it. You know, the, Paul had said something uh, of this effect to this effect in 2025 where he said, you're never going to see my face again. That's what he thought. And so part of this connection and this parting, this tearing away has to do with the, the, the reality of not seeing each other again. So we must be fair to the text, but like I said, let's still strive to be connected like that. And it, it, wouldn't it be true though, if, if you had someone that you loved deeply and that you had connected with and, and that you knew that you weren't going to see them again, wouldn't that be a very emotional and difficult moment to part from them? I have experienced this while standing beside a casket. And, and the thing is, is that Paul's not implying that you'll never see me again because in glory you will. And I know that, that those individuals, and I've stood beside many open caskets and said goodbye, that I know that some of those people were saved and I will see them again, but they're still a tearing in that moment that I'm not going to be able to see this person like I have day in and day out. And so we must be fair to the text, but I think it's something that we move towards always. Now, from Miletus, Paul and his companions sailed south to Kos, C-O-S, Kos. Kos was the capital city of the island called Kos, Okay. There was an actual small island in this region called Kos, and, and it, had a, it had a primary city named after the island, Kos. Kos was a primary exporter of wine, which I love and think is a great blessing of the Lord, always in moderation, but uh, it was a primary exporter of wine, and that was a great wine region. It kind of made Murphy's look like what it is, little old mining town, you know. And it was a primary exporter of olive oil, a primary exporter of ointments, and, and a primary exporter of fine weaving products, probably the primary exporter of all those things in that little region. So it was an interesting little trade community, if you will, or it produced these great things. Now, the next day, from Kos, they sailed to Rhodes. And Rhodes was an important commercial center for trade in the Mediterranean. Um, it had a massive, massive, like... Oakland, San Francisco-esque harbor. You've been to like Alameda, you know, in that area. You go across the, uh, the, the bridge there, you know, the Bay Bridge. I'm glad they redid it. It looks like it was about to fall. And, and you look back to the left and you see Alameda Harbor and Oakland Harbor and you got all those cranes. It was, it's in a fascinating harbor and site where they bring in so much trade. And, you know, I've been to San Francisco before and on the other side, on the beach side, and, and I've seen these huge freighters coming around into the bay that are loaded with all this cargo. And so this place had... A, um, a harbor like that, massive. In fact, uh, their harbor was referred to as the Colossus of Rhodes, and it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And so just get an idea of what this harbor was like. It must have been monotonous with boats all over, and, and this is what they sailed into. This is where they came in. And after a night in Rhodes, and, and keep this in mind too, at every one of these little islands and places, they like stay one night. 
You know, they stayed a night in Kos, they stayed a night in Rhodes, and after a night in Rhodes, they sailed around the southwestern corner of Asia Minor and stopped at Patara, or Patera. And Patera is a port city in western Lycia. Lycia is spelled L-Y-C-I-A, but it's pronounced Lycia. It's just kind of a weird Greek thing. Lycia. And then Patara's harbor was used by grain ships that sailed between Rome and Alexandria. And if you know where Alexandria was, it's at the northernmost part point of northern Africa. And so th- this particular place, this port city here in Lycia, Patara, it had all of these massive grain ships going, you know, basically stopping off at this place for a break and then continuing up to Rome in Italy, and then they would also make their way all the way down, and they would follow the coast. A lot of these ships didn't set out in open Mediterranean water. They would follow the coast so that they could stop off at all of the other port cities along the way. And so that's what this place was. Patara was one of these amazing places that would just, you know, it would be sprinkled with these grain ships that were bringing all this grain from North Africa upward into Rome and to all these other little places. And as I said, these grain ships would stop at various ports along the way, all the way down along the, the coast of Israel and up in you know, the coast of Samaria and Phoenicia and all these places. And Paul knew this. Paul figured that, man, at Patara we could probably catch a ride on one of these grain ships, uh, hopefully one that's going south and not north to Rome, and that maybe it would drop us off in Phoenicia or somewhere along the way that we might be able to get to um, Jerusalem by Pentecost. He's still trying to get there by this holiday. And so they searched for a ship at Patara, and, and they found one, and they set sail from there. And as they sailed along sort of, I would say, uh, kind of southeast, they passed by Cyprus on the southern side and shot straight through to Tyre where the ship was to unload its cargo. And so they found a ship that was doing that very thing. It was stopping at this various ports and they found one that was headed to Tyre. And so they got on this sucker and they sailed right over to that particular place. Now, the journey from Patara to Tyre took about five days. And so this was, you know, out in, I wouldn't say it was out in the middle. Actually, it was probably a little bit further out because Cyprus is closer to land. So they went around the southern side. So they were more out on the open water. But this was quite a distance from Patara to Tyre. I mean, five days on a boat. And so you're out there pretty good, and you're out there where you don't see land, and it's not like going to Catalina, if you've ever been there, where you can see L.A. on the other side. They, they were out in some somewhat of open water, and it was a five-day journey. And so has anyone here ever been on a boat for five days? Have you ever done like a, a cruise or something like that? Yeah? Yeah, I, I really want to do that, but I get motion sick so easily. So would it not be good for me? Well, they're so big, right? You'd think that you'd be okay, you know. My wife always says that. You're on a hotel. It'll be okay. And I'm like, yes, but the ocean, that's like a pin, you know, the size of a pinhead out in the middle of a mighty sea. A boat is nothing on these 20-foot rollers, you know. And so did you get sick on the boat? No. You didn't. Okay. And you, you do get it or not? Oh, you do. Okay, well, I'm going to have to try it maybe. I don't know. If you guys want to take up a special offering, we'd like to go to Alaska. Um, We certainly aren't going on our current budget, especially after we get done with the first financial peace class. 
Yeah, it's going to be like you can't go anywhere. You can't go to Salida, you know. I've been there before. So anyway, so they, they set sail and they made it over to Tyre. Now, Tyre here is the same port city Jesus visited during his ministry. Okay, this is mentioned back in the Gospels. He went to Tyre. He did do ministry there. It was there that the Lord encountered the Syrophoenician woman who asked to have a demon exercised from her daughter. Do you remember that account? And he did accommodate her. That was that fascinating little piece where, you know, she, she didn't feel worthy to do anything. And, and Jesus, you know, was talking to her. And she said, but even the, the dogs get the scraps that fall from the table. And it was just this neat exchange. He said something of the nature that I haven't found faith like what this Syrophoenician non-Jewish woman had. I haven't found faith like hers anywhere in all of Israel. And so it was a really interesting encounter, but he accommodated her, healed the daughter. It was a really neat thing. And so the Lord had done some ministry in that area. He had been there before. Now let's look at verses 4 through 6. 4 through 6. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went uh, went. And went on our way, sorry, and went on our way, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until uh, we were outside the city, and kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. Now, when they had landed at this port city, they found out that it would take about seven days to unload the ship's cargo. Uh, and so, which meant what? That they were pretty much going to be stuck in this particular place for a week. Uh, I don't know if we would say they were felt stuck, but for the most part, they were not going to get back on the same boat and probably couldn't find another boat to take. And so they, they reckoned, hey, we're going to be here for a week. And, and, and this is what I love about the Apostle Paul. And this is something that we have seen over and over and over and over. If he is afforded some time to do ministry, he does it. If he gets a week in a place, he doesn't sit back and play Call of Duty. He doesn't sit back and, you know, and sip fine wines and eat bread and cheese. He doesn't sit back and talk all day and do this and that. And he's not spending his, you know, entire existence on Facebook or tweeting, you know. He doesn't do these things. He, he, I'm here for a week. He doesn't say, darn it, I'm here for a week. He says, hey, that's fantastic. What an opportunity for ministry. And that's exactly what he does here. He gets here, he realizes he's going to be here for a week, and he immediately begins to search for believers. Maybe there's a church here. Maybe there's Christians here. Maybe there's a brotherhood here. Maybe there's a congregation. Maybe there's someone here that I can minister to, that I can preach the word to, that I can admonish, that I can encourage. He really, really was the kind of guy that made the best use of his time. He was such a great steward of his time, talent, and treasure. Now, Tyre was not one of the cities Paul visited during his missionary journeys. This was not a place that he visited during the first, second, or third missionary journey. So I wouldn't say that he had never been there before. He probably had been, but he had not been there to do ministry. He had not been there to preach the gospel. He had never gone there during any of those trips, any of those missionary journeys to plant a church. So the question becomes, how were there believers entire? And, you know, how was there maybe a church there? Why would he know to or think to search out 
Christians in this community. You know, who had preached the gospel there? Well, it most certainly could have been Jesus because we just talked about how Jesus went there and ministered to the Syrophoenician woman and had never, he had yet to find faith like hers any, in any other region. And so obviously there was, it was at least one person there who believed in Jesus, who had trusted in him. And so it, it could have happened through Jesus's ministry there. Although I will say this, that didn't happen a lot with Jesus's ministry. It was when the church, when the birth of the church and the Holy Spirit came that evangelism really set forth and all that. Now, I would not say that it wasn't Jesus's part of his purpose, you know, was not to convert people. I think it was to proclaim the gospel, the kingdom's coming, repent and believe the gospel, you know. And so he was interested in, in reaching people with the gospel, but, you know, there were other things that he had come for. He had come to fulfill the law and all these other things. And so Jesus would not have been known as a Billy Graham. He wasn't going out as some sort of evangelist. He was the Messiah who came to establish his earthly reign that is happening but also coming. And so there's differences. And so I don't think that it was because of the ministry of Jesus that there was a church there. And I don't want to take anything away from the Lord. It could have been. I think the answer is found in Acts eleven nineteen. I think the scripture is pretty clear. When Saul, who is Paul that we're talking about, interesting, right? Before he was converted, he and before he was converted, and at the point where he began his tirade and persecution against the church in Jerusalem, what happened to the believers after he began to persecute the church and killed Stephen? They scattered. They scattered. And guess what? When you go over and look at that passage in 1119, you'll see that some of them traveled north to Tyre, to Syria, to these other regions, to the region, if you will, of Phoenicia, which includes Tyre and Sidon and these other places. And so what happened was Saul persecutes the church. Christians scatter all over the place, even as far north, which is pretty far north, as Tyre, and what do they do when they go? Remember what it says also in close proximity to that particular passage, eleven nineteen. they went and gossiped the gospel. They shared the gospel everywhere they went. And so how was this church planted? How were their believers there? Very, very likely because of these scattered believers who went there and were faithful to the gospel and faithful to the mission of the church, Matthew 28, preach the gospel in all nations, making disciples that... Obey all that Christ commanded, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so I think that's what happened. Scattered believers spread the word there. Now, in any case, Paul knew that there were Christians in the area, and he went looking for them. Maybe he got a report. Maybe he heard, hey, there's a church here. We need to find it. What corner is it on? Where is it at? Where is that house at where these believers are meeting? Now, what do you suppose Paul did while he was with these disciples for a week? Okay, these are details that are not in the text. We, we don't know for sure. We have to speculate a little bit. But what has Paul always done when he goes to a pre-existing church? That we do know. He went out and planted all these churches in Asia Minor, Achaia, and Macedonia, and, you know, and all these different regions and he planted all these churches, and then he would also go back, and he would do certain things when he visited these churches. And what was it that he did? What did he do? Well, he taught the believers. He encouraged the believers. He exhorted the believers. He prayed with the believers. 
We have no reason to doubt that he, you know, did these same things or didn't do these same things with the Tyrians. Of course that's what he did with the Tyrians. He has a whole week to be with them. He's going to exhort them. He's going to encourage them. He's going to warn them. He's going to pray with them. You know, he's going to do all of those things. That's what he always does when he comes across a church or a handful of believers, some home where they're meeting. And so that's probably what he did. He ministered to them. And as I said earlier, he didn't squander his time. He didn't squander opportunities. He seized all of them. Every time the Lord brought him an opportunity, he did that stuff. You know, he was always, we might say that he was always busy with the things of the Lord, even while in prison. He was chained to a Philippian jailer who gave his life to Christ. <laughs> Just, yeah, he's in jail. He's still on mission. He's here. He's still on mission. He has a week off in, in, in this particular place in Tyre or whatever. He's still on mission. He was never off. V- vacation wasn't in his vocabulary. Leisure wasn't in his vocabulary. He did not know what golf is. And I'm not saying that some leisure in those things are not good. I think the Lord wants us to Sabbath in him primarily, but to also rest our bodies. But for the most part, you just couldn't find that in Paul. In Ephesians 5, uh, 15 through 16, Paul exhorted his readers to be very careful then how they live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity. Why? Because the days are evil. You know, that is what Paul did. He made the most of every opportunity and he lived and breathed in wisdom, making the best use of all of that stuff. And while he ministered to the Tyrians, they began to warn him through the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. He's doing his ministry with them, and now they begin to warn him. They have some sort of prophetic vision or inclination or unction, as Martin Lloyd-Jones would say. And they begin to warn him not to go to Jerusalem. Now, the question arises as to whether Paul received here a direct command from the Holy Spirit that he obstinately disobeyed. In verse 4, they warned him through the Spirit not to go, but in verse 5, he went anyways, right? He just kind of shucked their warning and went. Was he disobedient? That's a great question because many people say, yes, yes, he disobeyed the Holy Spirit's order not to go. One person said if Paul had obeyed the Spirit and stayed out of Jerusalem, he would not have been arrested and killed prematurely. His disobedience cost him his life. (laughs) This is obviously someone who doesn't know or understand the sovereignty of God or the providence of God. This is someone who thinks that we have this complete autonomy and free will and we do whatever we want. And if we make a bad choice, it'll cost us our life and screw up God's plan for us. It's not the case. Others, probably proponents of the social gospel or something of that nature, some liberal ideology of the gospel, argue that Paul was driven by his passionate concern for the poor. Because remember, he's delivering that offering for the poor. And that's why he disobeyed and went to Jerusalem. And in this case, it was kind of okay because he chose to love his neighbor. I mean, what? You mean loving your neighbor is exalted above obeying the Holy Spirit? In some people's minds, man is central, man is most important, and that's what matters. And if the Holy Spirit were to tell you something, first of all, the Holy Spirit would never prevent you from trying to care for someone. Really? And so some people have these ideas and they think that, yeah, he disobeyed and it cost him his life or he had disobeyed and it was justified because he went to love people and to share this offering with them or whatever. In any case, it'd be all right. 
Now, I'll give you five things to consider, which I believe refute the idea that Paul was disobedient. And I pulled some of these and kind of modified them a little bit, but I pulled them from MacArthur's commentary on this, so I can't take full credit on it, nor would I want to, because it should be the Holy Spirit. First, the phrase, through the Spirit, is inconclusive. It merely means that someone spoke from a gift, a spiritual gift of prophecy. Okay? As Paul notes in 1 Corinthians 14, 29, however, not every manifestation of the gift of prophecy is legitimate. Whether it was legitimate in this instance must be determined by other factors. Second, Paul lived a sensitive life to the Spirit's leading. When forbidden by the Spirit to preach in certain regions, Paul did not disobey, Acts 16, 6 through 7. When led by the Spirit to minister in Macedonia, Paul immediately obeyed, Acts 16, 9 through 10. Paul's pattern, if we look at those couple of passages and then go ahead and go back and read the book of Acts, Paul's pattern was obedience to the Spirit, not disobedience. Third, the Holy Spirit had never before prohibited Paul from going to Jerusalem. On the contrary, the Holy Spirit was actually leading Paul to Jerusalem. <laughs> right? In Acts 19.21, it says Paul was resolved in the Spirit, not his own emotion, but in the Holy Spirit, to go to Jerusalem and then to Rome. And in Acts 20, 22, it says Paul was headed to Jerusalem. How? He was constrained by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are a couple of passages where the Holy Spirit warned Paul about the suffering he would face. Okay, you look at Acts 9, 6. This is before he went out, really, and, and entered into the second and third mission. Maybe this is the beginning of the, that's actually prior to the first one. This is when he receives his calling, we might want to say. And so Acts 9, 6, it says, for I will show him, speaking of Paul, how much he will suffer for my name's sake. There's a clear warning from the Holy Spirit to Paul that, you know what? He's going to serve me and he's going to suffer. It's going to happen. And I think that's a guarantee for every servant of Christ. You will suffer in some way, shape, or form. And it's not a bad thing. There's joy in that. There really is. Now, Acts 20, 23, the Holy Spirit solemnly, this is Paul speaking, the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city saying that the bonds and afflictions, that bonds and afflictions await me. There's a clear warning in the previous chapter that as you go and minister, you're going to experience trouble. As you even go into Jerusalem, you're going to experience bonds, shackles, and affliction. Now, we must know and understand that the two things that I've described to you, they are not prohibitions. They are mere warnings. We can't say that because the Holy Spirit said to Paul, you're going to suffer, we can't say that that equates to don't go. Because all it means is you're going to suffer. It doesn't mean you're going to suffer, so don't go. It means you're going to suffer. Keep going. Keep going. And Paul did suffer, did he not? He had this demon-like thorn in his flesh. And, and uh, what was it, a, an agent of Satan? What did, they, what did he call it there? He called it something. It, was, it, was, it had something to do with Satan. It was this kind of like little cursy kind of thing that he had. I don't know if it was a physical ailment, an emotional ailment. It was something that he attributed to darkness and to dark forces that plagued him 
He was suffering at the hands of this ailment or whatever it is. And when he called three times for the spirit to remove it, for Jesus to remove it, what did Jesus say? My grace is sufficient. Suffering was indicative of this man's mission. But we must not interpret you're going to suffer for my name's sake. You're going to receive bonds and afflictions. Those things await you. We must not equate those things to prohibitions. They are mere warnings. And how gracious and amazing is our Savior who calls us to ministry. First of all, saves us. Amazing. Calls us to ministry. Equips us for ministry. Amazing. And then even warns us that it's going to be hard. That there's nothing that he doesn't disclose in some sense. That he says, you know what? It's going to be very tough. The world hated me. It hated you. I, I think that's amazing that our God loves us enough to, to warn us that we are going to be afflicted and that he actually equips us to suffer through affliction well. The Holy Spirit gave those warnings. They were not prohibitions to Paul to prepare him for the road ahead. Maybe even to test his courage or to increase his reliance on Christ, but never to stop him. Never. Never to stop him. Fourth, Paul described his mission to Jerusalem as the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus. Acts 20, 24. How could the Holy Spirit forbid Paul at this juncture from doing what the Lord Jesus commanded him to do? Do we have a confused, conflicted Godhead? Does the Father and the Holy Spirit and the Lord Jesus, do they argue amongst each other trying to figure out which one's right or which one should do what? No. How could two members of the Godhead contradict each other? This is impossible. We must know that with God there is no variation or shadow due to change. James 1.17. This was the ministry that Paul had been given. Part of it had to do with going to Jerusalem and then going to Rome. And so... Jesus did not contradict the Spirit. The Spirit did not contradict. You see, when people take that other view, they contradict what Scripture plainly teaches. Oh, yeah, he went against the will of the thing. They don't even understand the... Con if you take the passage that we're studying right now, where the believers in this city warned him, if you take it out of context, it would certainly seem that Paul was being disobedient. That's why you must never take any passage out of context. You must know what it says before and after. Amen? Finally, the scriptures nowhere suggest that Paul sinned by going to Jerusalem. There's no inclination, inference, or anything that says anything remotely close to that in the book of Acts or in any of his epistles or in anyone else's epistles. After he got to Jerusalem, he actually declared, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. Acts 23 verse 1. It's pretty difficult to see how he could have said that if he had flagrantly disobeyed and sinned against God by going to where he wasn't supposed to go. How could someone say something like that, especially a godly man like this? F.F. Bruce wrote this in his commentary on Acts 21, verse 4. It should not be concluded that Paul's determination to go on was disobedience to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. It was under constraint of that spirit that he was bound for Jerusalem with such determination. In MacArthur, 
his final comments on that little verse there. It says, entire, as in so many other places, the Holy Spirit warned Paul of the persecution he faced in Jerusalem. The believers entire, through the Spirit, foresaw the suffering he would endure when he reached his goal. It was only natural that they, speaking of the Tyrians, would try to dissuade him from going to Jerusalem. It's only natural that they would try to do that. The Spirit's message to Paul and Tyre, as elsewhere, was a warning, not a prohibition. Now, when the seven days had concluded, the ship was ready, apparently, and Paul and his companions went to the harbor. Now, this is after doing a great week of ministry with these believers. Now, incredibly, all of those believers, the men, the wives, and the children, this whole church here, apparently, followed along to send them off. That's pretty amazing. And when they reached the beach, they all knelt down and prayed together. They no doubt prayed for Paul's safety and success in delivering the offering, the continuation of his his mission. And when a brother or sister in Christ is facing some sort of difficulty or challenge like Paul was here, we should gather around them and pray just as the Tyrians did. We should encircle them and pray with them and encourage them and exhort them and build them up and encourage them. Think of Jonathan, the best friend of King David, how he always appeared at the right time with the right words from the Holy Spirit to build him up as Jonathan's own dad was pursuing and persecuting him. This is what we should do. We should seek out our brothers and sisters and when they're struggling through a difficult season encircle them and pray with them even kneel down with them and pray with them lay hands on them encourage them help them that's what we should do just like these Tyrians did now after praying Paul and his companions boarded the ship everyone went home and they set sail look at seven through nine when we had when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Now, from Tyre, they sailed to Ptolemus. Ptolemus was eh, roughly 25 miles south of Tyre. It was situated a little less than halfway between Tyre and Caesarea. So now they're on that northern coast of Israel, if you will, and they're making their way down along the coastline. And their ship stopped off here at at Caesarea, maybe to unload its cargo there as well. Maybe it had grain to unload. Maybe it had something to pick up. And uh, Paul also, and this is interesting, also made good time, uh, good of his time there as well. It says there in the text, and he was only there for, I think, a day or so, not long, but he greeted the brothers. Okay, so he found brothers. He found a church in this area too, and he basically spent an entire day with them. What did he do with the church at Ptolemus? Probably prayed with them, probably ministered to them, probably encouraged them, what he always does. He How did this church form? How was this church brought into existence there too? Probably also from scattered believers from Jerusalem. Kind of the same thing that's playing out here that played out in Tyre. On the next day, they sailed about 40 miles south to Caesarea. Caesarea was Jerusalem's port city. Jerusalem was about 60 miles inland. But this particular city, Caesarea, served as Jerusalem's port city. The import for Jerusalem and any export that went out went along a road and ended up at Caesarea and was shipped from that locale. 
It was also the seat of the Roman government in Judea and the official residence of its governors, most notably Pontius Pilate. That's where he lived. Caesarea had a mixed population of Jews and Gentiles, and it was home to Philip. Philip was one of the original, I love his name, Philip was one of the original seven deacons. Remember that from Acts 6? The apostles appointed seven deacons to oversee the distribution of food to widows. God honored Philip's service. Philip was just a tremendous servant of the Lord. He served in that capacity as a deacon, but God honored his service and called him to be an evangelist. It was he who preached the gospel in Samaria, Acts 8.5, and many other nearby cities, Acts 8.40. Philip was also a pioneer in preaching the gospel to non-Jews, first to half-breed Samaritans. They were kind of like half Greek, half or half Gentile, half Jewish. And then to the Ethiopian eunuch. You remember that over in Acts 8.26, long time ago in our study. He richly deserved the appellation evangelist, a title given to no one else in Acts. That's where you see it is in our text, Philip the Evangelist. Pretty amazing, huh? No one else in Acts. And there was a lot of evangelism happening. No one else bears that appellation, that title, that moniker. Pretty cool. The text says Philip had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Some translations like the King James and probably others identify them as virgins uh, rather than as unmarried. The idea here is unmarried means virgin. Uh, and also the idea here means or is that they were young girls, maybe in their early teens. Uh, these four young girls possessed the gift of prophecy, uh, which is a gift that the Lord had given in the early days of the church. Uh, it was given by God to believers for the purpose of building up other believers in personal and practical ways. They sometimes received new revelation from God concerning matters that would later be covered in Scripture. The main thrust of the ministry of those who had this gift of prophecy, however, was the reiteration of exposition of existing divine revelation. We see that in 1 Corinthians 14, 3, much like today's preachers and teachers of God's word. Now, we must understand, though, that God's revelation to us was completed at the end of the apostolic age, death of the apostle John, if you will, the last one which means that there is no need for or uh, there's no reason to have any sort of new prophetic revelation. And any person who claims to receive prophetic revelation, anything beyond scripture, anyone who claims to receive new stuff from God is a false prophet. You must know that. There is no revelation outside of scripture that is being given to anyone in our day and age. And I hear people say these things all the time. The Lord told me this. The Lord told me that. They're saying things that you don't find in scripture. They're saying things that aren't scriptural, that aren't in the Bible. And, and so in some ways we might think of what they're saying. The Lord told me to do this, to sit over here and to do this and that. What you're claiming when you say these things is new revelation, which means you're actually adding the curse of the last chapter of Revelation to yourself when you make these statements. So we need to be very, very careful not to add or subtract anything from God's word. It is a, a finished, a complete, and a perfectly sufficient revelation right there in your scripture, all 66 books, not 76 like some others who claim to be Christian have. 66, that's what's orthodox. That's what's canon. And so there is no new revelation. It's closed. The Bible's it, and it's all we need. Our text 
does not describe, and I hate this about it sometimes, it doesn't say how they prophesied. It just says they were four young unmarried daughter, virgin daughters who prophesied. Can you throw us a bone here, Lord? It, that's all it says, man. And you know why there's no bone there? Because it's not the point of the text. But I still want to know what they did. I still want to know what they said, right? We don't know. It doesn't give us any detail. It doesn't include details about their ministry. Uh, obviously, because of what the text says, as we continue, they did not receive the same warnings about Paul going to Jerusalem as the believers in Tyre did. That's interesting. An important thing to note, however, is that God calls and equips young people to serve him. That's what I get out of this little line that talks about these young virgin daughters, these young unmarried daughters that had the gift of prophecy. What it shows us is that God calls, saves, calls, and equips young people with gifts and talents to serve him. That's what you should get out of that little line. We don't have to spend all day trying to figure out what they did. They had a ministry. They had gifts. And how fascinating is that, that it's young people in that context that had these things. I love that. Every young person in this room, and there's not a whole lot of them, there's a lot of old guys like me, ought to be encouraged. This row of young men, you ought to be encouraged that God saves, calls, equips young people to serve in ministry. You ought to be encouraged about this. You know, if you're young, don't think that you have to become an adult before you can get saved, before you can get called, before you can get equipped, before you can be used by God. Seek God while you're young. Ask him to reveal how he has gifted you, Annika. Ask him to equip you and to use you, to use you, Aiden, to use you, Colin, Ryan, and you other guys. And some of you guys are being used. Some of you guys are doing these things. You know, don't, 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 don't get discouraged because of your youth. You know, Paul exhorted, first, uh, exhorted Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 12. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. You know, but set an example for the believers in speech and conduct in love and faith and impurity and these sorts of things. Think of Josiah who was 16 years old when he, you know, he became king at eight. But at 16, he basically got saved and began to serve the Lord as the king over Judea. Amazing. Began to serve the Lord and went out and tore down all the Asherah poles and all of the shrines and altars. What an amazing young man of God. 16 years old doing these things. Amazing. Think of guys like that and, and, and think of young ladies like that and these young ladies in this text. You can be saved at your age. You can be. God can do these things and equip you to use you for ministry. And I'm so thankful we're at a small church where he is, is using some of our young people. He has put that on them. Let's rejoice in that stuff. 10 through 12. I just had to stop there and just talk about that. Why would you not? I know when I was a young person, I was pretty much good for nothing. But man, if somebody just encouraged me that I could be known by God, God had a plan, some sort of plan that God desired to save any of these things that use me, maybe that would have been a turning point in my life. Maybe I wouldn't have turned towards all of the things that aren't helpful, that aren't useful. That I mean, I don't know. I, I, I don't want to say that things would have been different because I went through the things as I was supposed to. God brought me to this place. But what a difference it makes when we look at how God uses people. 10 through 12. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us. 
And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his feet. How weird would it be for someone to come up and take your belt off? Especially in this day and age where belts are barely holding people's pants up. Bound his own feet. He took his belt off and he bound his own feet and hands and said, listen to this. Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. What? When we heard this, we and the people there urged him, urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Whoa. Now, Paul and his companions decided to stay with Philip in Caesarea for many days. It says right up there at the beginning. During that time, this prophet named Agabus came, to, came from Judea, all the way from Judea, and traveled to Caesarea to give a message to Paul. This was the purpose of his trip. He came all the way that far, 60 miles or so, probably from Jerusalem, to take Paul's belt off, awkward, to bind himself with it, weird, and then to say what everyone else has been saying to him. I am so glad God has not called me to do that kind of ministry. If I go up to you and take your belt off, run. I mean, isn't that strange? What a bizarre ministry. Now, this was... The same Agabus of Acts 11.28 who prophesied, this guy was a prophet, who prophesied through the Spirit about the severe famine that was about to hit the Roman Empire. Now when Agabus arrived at Philip's house, he approached Paul, removed his belt, and then he hogtied himself. That's kind of strange. He hogtied himself with it. And then he said that the Holy Spirit, I'm paraphrasing, had revealed to him that the Jews at Jerusalem will do the very same thing to the owner of this belt. That's you, Paul. It's a nice belt, by the way. It's you, Paul. They're going to do the same thing to you and then hand you over to the Gentiles. Now, according to Acts, uh, according to the book of Acts, or according to our passage at least, not the book of Acts, but to our passage, to chapter 21, this is the second time the Holy Spirit warned Paul about going to Jerusalem. If we go back into chapter 20, this is the second time since he left Miletus he was warned, this is what's going to happen. Oh my goodness. Again, here though, you must understand, this is not a prohibition. Do you see anywhere where Agabus says, don't go because this is what's going to happen to you? All you see Agabus says, say is this is what's going to happen when you go. So have fun with that. He doesn't say that. That's my little adaptation. This is not a prohibition. This is another warning. Now, this particular warning was a visual warning. It was vivid, right? People back in Tyre had said, hey, you know, uh, don't go, it's going to be a bad thing. The Holy Spirit has warned us, it's going to be bad for you. And, and, and the Holy Spirit, again, wasn't saying don't go. They were saying don't go, as good friends might say, right? Oh, there's trouble coming your way, I'd probably avoid that. That's what they were doing. It wasn't sin, what they were doing. But this time, that was a, that was a verbal warning. This time, there's a visual warning attached to the verbal warning. There is a vivid thing done here, like, a belt is removed and a person is tied up and says, this is you. That, that's pretty insane. And at this point, this particular warning not only captures the attention of the Caesarean believers of Philip and his household and those, but it really grabbed the attention of Luke and the other companions that were there. Okay, back in Tyre, it was the Tyrians who urged Paul not to continue. But in verse 12, Luke wrote, we, we, we and the people urged him not to go. Now, the other guys that are with him are all wrapped up. Dude, you're going to get tied up, man. 
You're going to get hogtied, bro. Luke is saying these things. Luke, who wrote what we've been studying here, he wrote that. Well, we started urging him. We, we told him not to go. They pleaded with him not to go. Paul's own guys were saying, don't go, don't do it, it's dangerous. Now, this had a profound effect on Paul. Look at verses 13 to 14. Then Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Paul was a little befuddled. He was a little perplexed by how they were trying to persuade him not to do what he believed the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit had commanded, constrained him to do. He believed without a doubt that it was God's will for him to go to Jerusalem and then to Rome. So it didn't matter. It really didn't matter to Paul what anyone else said or did. Paul was convicted and convinced about the matter. To him, Agabus' demonstration was probably kind of cool, but ultimately irrelevant. It was irrelevant to him. He did not care about being arrested by the Jews and handed over to the Gentiles or being chained. If that was what it took, in Paul's mind, if that was what it took to get him, to put him before higher authorities and rulers and kings to preach the gospel, then so be it. That was his mindset. But then you have his closest companions and a bunch of others weeping and pleading with him, don't go. Their emotional duress, stress, anxiety, these things began to take a toll on him. His heart started to break. He said, what are you doing? Which really sounds more like, why are you doing this to me? Do you not understand what I've been called to do? We've talked about this over and over. Have I ever shrunk back? What did I command the Ephesian elders to do? That's what's playing out here. And then he reminded them about how he was ready to be imprisoned and to even die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. This was his way of saying, I'm going through with it no matter what you say or do. Kind of like Luther said, I can do nothing other. I cannot go against, I am bound by scripture. I can do nothing else. Here I stand. That's what Paul did right here. He made a declaration. What are you doing trying to stop me? I am gonna go and if I die there, I die there. But Paul believed he was not gonna die in Jerusalem because the ministry that the Lord had given him included a trip to Rome. And so he believed those prophetic things that were given to him prior to this but for the most part man he just stuck to the plan and when they realized that Paul was immovable they gave up and said let the will of the Lord be done this wasn't a fatalistic statement this was them submitting to the will of the Lord saying it is no it is not the will of the Lord that we continue to try to persuade him to stay away we are now fighting we are now kicking against the goads if you will they complied with the Spirit's calling on Paul's life. They were now being obedient. Well-intending Christians do this all the time. They try to rescue people out of situations that God deliberately has them in. Well-meaning. We love you. We want you out of that situation. It's bad for you. And what we could very well be doing is fighting the Holy Spirit and kicking against the goads. You know, 
suffering persecution in ministry, in, in our calling, is not the worst thing we can experience. We can't experience the worst thing possible, and that's to be thrown from the love of God. If you're saved, you're saved. That's it. The only thing that should frighten us would be losing our salvation, and we should never be frightened by that because it's an impossibility. And so if man destroys our physical tents, our bodies, if people curse us and ridicule us and, 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 and despise us and reject us, we should be like the apostles when that happened to them and they were even beaten for obeying and preaching the gospel. We should rejoice because persecution is not the worst thing that we can experience. We cannot experience the worst thing possible and that's a loss of our salvation. We should rejoice in all things. Paul knew this, and they realized in this moment, we should quit fighting and trying to get him to do what God called him to do. Let the will of the Lord be done. If he is willing to suffer for the sake of Christ, why would we try to stop him from doing that? Because we're so selfish, we love him and want him and need him so badly. There's almost a little fixation here with them, a little idolatry playing out. I can't go on without my pastor. Yes, you can. I can't go on without that person. Yes, you can. If you ever say to yourself, I cannot live without that person, you are idolater. The only person you should say, I cannot live without is Christ. Amen? And so they complied. They turned it around. This was their way of entrusting Paul to the care of the sovereign Lord. Let's look at our last verses, 15 through 16. We're almost done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us. That's brilliant. Bringing us to the house of Menanson of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. And after many days, they had some time between the day of Pentecost and this holiday. They, they got to this destination a little early, so they had a little bit of time. You wanted to get to Jerusalem by then. They had a little time to spend there with Philip and the daughters and, and the church there. They spent some time there after that. They departed for Jerusalem, which was about 60 miles, as I said, east, a four-day journey by foot. Verse 16 is absolutely incredible. It is amazing. The fear over what would happen to Paul in Jerusalem turned to courage and boldness among some of the Caesarean disciples. This is absolutely spectacular. It says, some of them went with us. Not only did Luke and Paul's companions go, despite the fact that danger, that Paul faced danger, and don't you think for a moment that Paul would have been the only target in this city of Jerusalem, which was the primary city that persecuted the Christian church during this time. If you wanted to get jacked up as a Christian, visit Jerusalem. Make it known that you love Jesus. Go ahead and get baptized out in public and see what happens to you. So the threat wasn't just for Paul being hogtied in these things. It was for Luke and the companions and anyone else with him. And here we see in this fascinating verse, verse 16, some of these Caesareans were emboldened by Paul's courage and relentless commitment. And they tagged along and went with him and said, let the will of the Lord be done. If I'm done there, then I'm done there. Oh, well, I got Jesus. That's what matters. I love that, man. That is so amazing that they followed him along. They went with him. And not only did they courageously accompany Paul and his companions, but they also, they also used their connections 
to establish lodging for these guys at the home of a guy they knew and trusted, Menanson, a Cyprian and early disciple. Wow. Closing. If we were to take this passage and boil it down, what would the main theme be? We've talked about travel and these sorts of things. I think it's, the theme is fairly clear. The thing that stands out in this text is Paul's courage and unwavering commitment. If we disembowel that from this text, we just have some historical narrative of them traveling from point A to point B. The theme of this text is Paul's courage and unwavering commitment. We see that in his travels. Most of us hardly want to drive three miles to church on Sunday. And this man sailed all over. We see a commitment in his travels. We see courage in his travels. We, we, we see him warned twice in our text by the Holy Spirit about what he's facing and what he's going to experience. And we see him display incredible courage. Not disrespect toward the Holy Spirit's warnings or anything of that nature, but we see him resolved. We see him display an unwavering commitment to follow through with the mission and the objectives that the Lord Jesus had given him, that the Holy Spirit had constrained him to do. Is that not what we see? Two times that his friends and a prophet basically tried to dissuade him from going into danger. And two times we see him. The first time, we, he, just, he just, just leaves and just goes and does his thing. The second time, he says, you're not going to stop me if I have to die there. I have to die there. What resolve, what an unwavering commitment to getting that offering, his mission to get that offering to those poor believers. You know, that church in Jerusalem was completely expired. They had nothing left to give anyone. They'd spent all those years ministering to their community, and they had nothing, not a dime, not a loaf. Paul was committed to doing what he had been commanded to do. Absolutely. Is that not the theme of this text? Application. Three days ago, we began a new year. It's hard to believe, right? I'm going to spend the next two months erasing 2014 off invoices and correcting it with 2015. Anyone else do that? I'm having a hard time with the fact that we're in another year. But I'm excited about being another year closer to being with Jesus forever. And 2015 will be marked by challenges that we can respond to either courageously or cowardly. We will be bombarded by many temptations to break commitments that we have. Men, you will be tempted to break the commitment with your wife. You will be. All it has to be is an ad on your TV or on your computer, some lustful thing that pulls you away into adulterous thoughts where you are breaking your commitment to your wife. We will be tempted to break our commitments to our church and our giving. Well, I went out and loaded up a credit card and I can't give as much. We'll be tempted to go out and spend money that we don't have. We're gonna be tempted. Jesus was tempted in every way. In 2015, you're gonna be tempted in every way. And we are all people of commitments. We all have commitments. Some big commitments, some small. If you're married, you're, you're a person of commitment. 
And we are going to be bombarded in 2015 by many temptations to break our commitments. The question again is, how will we respond to these challenges and temptations? Will we respond courageously and follow through with our commitments? Will we be courageous in declaring the truth before people who hate the truth, who pe- before people who want to malign and adapt and change and manipulate the truth and say things that aren't true? Will we be like Paul and follow his example? Or more importantly, will we be like Jesus and follow his example? After all, he is our shepherd and leader and the only reason why Paul was who he was. The only reason why Paul had courage, the only reason why Paul had an unwavering commitment to the things of the Lord and to his friends and everyone else, the only reason why was because of Jesus. My prayer is that we would be constrained by the Holy Spirit to courageously press forward in every situation and circumstance, no matter how difficult they may be. We won't do these things perfectly. And there is an ocean of grace for us when we fail. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't seek and call for God and say, make us courageous men and women and and help us to uphold our commitments and to follow through with the things that you've called me to do, whether that be marriage or work, your fellowship at church, your giving, whatever those things are, relationships, that we would run the race with endurance. Run that race with endurance, the race that has been set before us, it says in Hebrews. Why all to the glory of God, amen? Father, as we enter into this time of communion, may we reflect upon the truth that we've heard. And God, if we are incapable of believing the truth because we have not been regenerated by the Spirit, we pray for that miracle of grace right now in the life of anyone here who does not yet know you. God, would you show grace and save someone here if they're not saved? God, would you continue to build up the saints to sanctify us, embolden us, encourage us? Give us courage, Lord to stand for truth. Give us courage to fulfill our objectives, our ministry, our commitments to follow through. Maybe some of those things have yet to been set because we're young or whatever. God, would you show us what we're to do and give us the attitude and heart to follow through, to engage. Lord, as we take these elements, may we remember that It's through the blood, broken body of Christ that we could even attempt to do any of this stuff, that we could even attempt to obey the scripture. It's by the power of the gospel. And those elements represent the blood and body of Jesus, which represent our freedom, our salvation, our future. May we take those things in reverence, but in joy. May we confess our sin before we take those things. May we remember what they represent, the finished work of Christ. May we remember the things that you've said to us this morning, embolden us to serve, to follow through, to be like Paul, but more importantly, to be like Jesus, who is the ultimate example of following through. 
And may we know that in every area where we fall short, that Jesus still loves us and he still forgives our sin. His atonement is forever. And that he renews us, that he challenges us, that he equips us. Thank you for that. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Help yourselves to the elements.